Chapter 7 of The Boy Scouts on Swift River by Thornton W. Burgess. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7 The First Portage and Camp. There were perhaps two pailfuls of water in Walter's canoe, but thanks to the waterproof covering of the pack baskets and the waterproof provision bag, it had done little damage. The sweaters of both boys lying on the bottom of the canoe were soaked through, but beyond this the water had caused little inconvenience. Woodhall turned the canoe over and examined it with care. A long white scar showed where the paint had been scraped off near the keel, and the inner lining of wood was cracked in two places, mute evidence of the force with which they had hit the rock. But the canvas was unpunctured, and Lewis breathed a sigh of relief. If that canoe had been birch bark instead of canvas, you fellows wouldn't have gotten off so easily, was his sole comment. It had been arranged that on portages Woodhall should carry the canoes, leaving the others to bring over the duffel. For while both Walter and Hal were sturdy youngsters for their years, the weight of the canoe was more than they could undertake without serious risk of a strain. With the deafness of long experience, Woodhall lashed the paddles to the thwarts of the canoes, Swinging his pack basket to his back, he pulled a sweater over his shoulders and stooped to take up one of the canoes. He had moved so quickly that until then the others had not sensed his tension. But now, as by a common impulse, Hal and Walter sprang forward with a yell of protest. No, you don't, Lewis. Put down that pack. If you carry the canoes, we carry your pack. But Lewis brushed them aside with a good-natured grin. Upended the canoe, turned it over, and deftly slipped under it. A second later it was skillfully balanced on his shoulders, the two paddles resting across the padding afforded by the sweater. Get a move on you fellows. We're going to make an early camp at the other end of the carry, and I have a hunch there are some good pickerel waiting for us just below the falls, he said as he hit the trail at a brisk pace. Come on, fellows. Let's show him that he can't beat us to it with that load cried Hal, slipping the straps of his pack-basket over his shoulders and picking up his fish-rod and camera in one hand and grub-bag in the other. Walter and Plimpton followed suit. In an Indian file, the three boys struck into the trail on the double-quick in an effort to overtake Lewis. The trail was an old lumber road, easy to follow. For a short distance it rose rather sharply, then for a mile followed the crust of a ridge through a thick growth of young hardwoods, the trail then opened into an old clearing with the ruins of a log house and barn in the middle of it. On the far side of this clearing it struck into the woods again for a few hundred yards and ended up on the bank of the river just below a short stretch of rapids below the falls. The full distance of the portage was a mile and a half. In spite of their efforts, Lewis was just entering the clearing when Hal and Walter came in sight of him, and by that time both boys were pretty well blown. "'Phew! This beastly pack weighs a ton,' panted Hal, the perspiration running in streams down his face. Walter grinned sympathetically. "'Mine, too,' he grunted. "'We've got a good half-mile yet, and Lewis looks as if he'd just started. "'I don't wish him any bad luck, but just the same I wish he'd stub his toe or something so that he'd have to stop,' growled Hal. Hardly were the words out of his mouth when he himself, paying more attention to Woodhull than his own footing, stepped on a rolling stone, slipped, straightened up suddenly to catch his balance, and, overweighted by the pack on his back, sat down with a jolt threatened to loosen his back teeth. 
Still pulled backward by the pack, he finally lay at full length with all the wind knocked out of him. The rod and camera he still clung to tenaciously, but the food bag rolled off to one side just in time to trip Walter, who had been hard on his heels, and who had turned aside abruptly to avoid falling over Hal. Probably he would have caught himself in time to avoid a fall if it had not been for his own pack, but as in Hal's case the weight was too much to overcome and he sprawled headlong, the weight on his shoulders driving him forward instead of pulling him backward. For a few minutes the two boys lay still, striving to get their breath. Then Walter managed to unbuckle the pack straps and freeing himself from the basket slowly and painfully got to his feet. His shins were barked and there was a stone bruise in one hand. But these were forgotten for the time being in the ridiculousness of Hal's predicament as he vainly struggled to roll over and get to his feet. "'I don't see anything to laugh at,' growled Hal, still kicking helplessly. "'My back's almost broken,' he added with a half-groan. "'Unbuckle your straps, you ninny!' gasped Walter, and leaning over, performed that service for his fellow victim. Freed of his burden, Hal scrambled to his feet, and they took account of stock. Beyond bruises and strained ligaments and general soreness all over, there seemed to be nothing serious the matter. Fortunately, there had been nothing in the packs to break, and by some miracle of good fortune the cameras and fishing rods had also escaped. "'Gee, I'm glad Lewis didn't see that spill,' exclaimed Walter as he prepared to take up his burden once more. "'Or sister, either,' said Hal. "'By the way, where is sister?' "'Oh, we lost him half a mile back.' replied Walter carelessly. He had to stop for a rest at the top of the hill, and he's probably rested every hundred yards since. He sure is weak. I don't see what Lewis was thinking of to want him on a trip like this. He seems like a nice enough little fellow, but he hasn't got the strength for this sort of thing, and, oh, hang it all, I doubt if he's got the sand. Walter spoke with the unthinking scorn of the robust for the weak. With grunts and groans, the boys resumed their burdens, which to their aching muscles now seemed twice as heavy as when they had first strapped them on, and once more hit the trail. Hardly had they disappeared around a turn when Plimpton slipped out of the bushes just above the scene of disaster and doggedly plodded along after them. A grin mantled his thin, freckled face, for he had not been so far behind as the others had supposed, and had come in sight of them before they had regained their feet. Rightly sensing something of their feeling toward him, and that they might resent having him as a witness of their mishap, he had discreetly withdrawn into the bushes and eased his own aching shoulders while he waited for them to move on. "'I'll show em yet,' he muttered grimly. "'They think just because I'm not as strong as they are that I'm a quitter. But I'll show em. He gritted his teeth and resolutely trudged on with a burden which, in proportion to his strength, was far heavier than those of his comrades. He had said nothing, but he had taken note of what the others had carried as a load and had quietly assumed an equal weight. To be sure, he had had to rest while the others had pushed on, but their mishap had done much to draw the sting of this, and now he determined that he would make at least half a mile without resting if it killed him. Woodhall having hopelessly outdistanced them, Hal and Walter slowed down their pace so that the three arrived at the end of the carry almost together. As they wearily swung their packs to the ground, Woodhall looked at them sharply. "'Seems to me that you found the trail rather dusty, Walt. I didn't notice it myself,' he remarked. Walter grinned sheepishly. 
for he and Hal certainly did look the worse for wear. In their haste they had but half brushed themselves. Before Walter could frame a suitable answer, Woodhull continued. You and Hal come back with me for the rest of the stuff. Plimpton, you rig your rod with a spoon and try for a pickerel over there in the smooth water near the falls. You ought to have enough for dinner by the time we get back. Now come on, you fellows. Plimpton flashed a grateful look at the leader, while Hal nudged Walter as they fell in behind Lewis on the back trail. Rather soft for sister, he murmured. Walter grinned, but said nothing. Truth to tell, he had seen with something of a feeling of chagrin that Plimpton's load had been quite equal to his own. And in a vague way he had realized that it had meant a great deal more to the tenderfoot than to himself. When he reached the scene of the mishap, Woodhull's keen eye noticed at once the evidence of a disturbance in the trail. "'Looks as if a couple of bucks had been tearing up things here,' he said with a swift sidelong glance at his companions. "'So it does.' replied Hal gravely. Do you suppose they were fighting? Looks to me more as if they had been wallowing. They took pains not to leave any footprints, replied Lewis without a trace of a smile. The return trip was made without incident, albeit with many smothered groans on the part of Hal and Walter, for they were so stiff and sore that even the lighter loads which fell to their share now seemed little less than torture. They struggled on grimly, however. Plimpton had not returned when they reached camp, but he came in a few minutes later with three big pickerel, and preparations were at once begun to establish the camp. Walt, I hereby appoint you chief and warn you that we expect a full-course dinner in the celebration of our first day out, said Woodhall briskly. Hal, you are assistant chief, which means that you'll hustle the firewood. Plimpton and I will attend to pitching the tents. Now get busy, everybody. Come on, Plimpton. The location was ideal. A low bluff overlooked the river, affording a splendid view of the lower rapids. And on this bluff there was a small clearing. Woodhall had found a smooth, level place where the two tents could be pitched side by side, facing the river. A little to one side, Walter discovered a backwoods range ready for use. This consisted of two huge bed logs between which the fire could be built and over the middle supported on two forked sticks, a light pole about seven feet long. This was about four feet above the ground, and in the parlance of the north woods is known as the lug pole. From it swung several pot hooks of varying lengths, these being merely forked sticks inverted over the lug pole. Above the forks, sufficient of the main stem had been left for a good hand grip, while one branch had been cut off so as to leave a four-inch stub while the other branch was of sufficient length so that when a nail was driven in it at an angle near the end, the kettle hung from this would hang sufficiently near the fire for cooking purposes, or to keep the contents hot. The presence of this range was evidence that the place was a favorite camping ground, and Walter knew that a good spring undoubtedly was near. While Lewis and Plimpton unrolled the tents and then went in search of four straight young saplings for poles, Walter unpacked the cooking outfit, and, kettle in hand, went in search of the spring. It took but a few minutes to discover a faint path, and following this through a thicket and down over a bluff, he presently came to a big white pine leaning out over the river, and at the foot of it a hollow just above the high water mark. It was brimming full of clear, cold water, which bubbled out from the bank under the pine and trickled in a tiny stream down to the river. 
The kettle was filled. Walter paused for a minute to admire the rugged beauty of the scene. His keen observing glance was arrested by an old log projecting into the river. On the end of it was evidence that it was a favorite dining resort of a muskrat. A sudden thought brought a twinkle to the boy's eyes, and hastily glancing around to be sure that he was unobserved, he slipped off his shoes and waded out to the end of the log. It was shallow and somewhat sandy there, and after a little search he triumphantly plunged one arm into the water and dug out the soft bottom of three oblong objects. With these carefully hidden, he hurried back to his duties as chief cook. Meanwhile, Hale had brought in a supply of birch bark to start the fire, and was busily splitting a supply of hardwood. The fire was soon merrily crackling, and over it Walter hung one of the kettles half filled with spring water. As soon as it boiled, he crumpled into it half of one of the rolls of herbwurst, and added four bullion cubes, a pinch of salt, and a sprinkling of pepper. Leaving Hal to stir this occasionally, he took the three big pickerel to the water's edge and dressed them. Moving the pot-hook from which the kettle of soup was suspended along the lug-pole to a point where the soup would keep hot but no longer boil, he prepared to fry the fish. The fire had burned down to red-hot coals, which, because they were of hardwood, would hold their heat for a long time. Cutting three slices of fat salt pork, Walter fried these to a crisp brown. Removing them, he dropped into the sizzling hot fat the fish, which had been cut in convenient pieces and rolled in meal. The odor of the frying fish, mingled with the sweet breath of the balsams, was indescribably appetizing, and Woodhull, who had just finished tightening the last guy rope of the tents, sniffed like a hungry bear. I've got a tickle at the end of my nose that goes way down to the bottom of my stomach, he announced. Isn't that dinner most ready? Walter caught up a pan and beat the bottom of it with a short stick until the woods rang. All hands turn in for dinner, he shouted. No second invitation was needed, and his three comrades promptly lined up on the trunk of a fallen tree close by. Gravely, Walter passed to each an agate-ware plate in the middle of which lay a freshly opened mussel or fresh water clam, the result of his foray in the river at the end of the muskrat's log. I'm sorry I can't serve these on ice, but the ice man didn't see my card, he apologized. The three boys stared at the clams garnished with sprigs of hemlock and then at the chief. What the dickens are these for? inquired Lewis, studying his clam, and then Walter with a puzzled air. A course dinner always begins with clams or oysters on the half-shell, replied Walter, without the shadow of a smile. Will you have salt and pepper with yours, sir? He ducked just in time to dodge three pans hurled at him, as by common impulse, and leaving the others to chuckle over his joke, he hastened to dish up the soup. The crispy brown flaky fish followed. With plenty of bread and butter brought from Woodcraft, the whole washed down with hot cocoa. When the last scrap of fish had vanished, Hal rose and let out a hole in his belt. Then, fishing a penny from his trousers pocket, he dropped it in an empty cup and passed it to Woodhall and Plimpton, who caught the idea at once and contributed a penny each. A tip for the cook, he said gravely, passing the cup to Walter, who accepted it with an equally grave, Thank you, sir. A Walter and Hal washed the dishes, Lewis dug out the repair kit and plied a patch to the damaged canoe. This reminded Walter of their exciting run of the rapids. Well, Hal, how about Swift River now? Does it move fast enough for you? He asked. You bet it does, 
was his emphatic reply, adding as a thought struck him, but it seems that it doesn't for you. What in thunder were you yelling at me to paddle for when we were going a mile a minute through those rapids? Walter turned to stare at Hal. Why, you greeny, he drawled. Don't you know yet that a boat must move faster than the water in order to give it steerage way? How did you suppose I was going to dodge the rocks if we just drifted? Why, George, I never thought of that. Well, don't forget it next time, replied Walter dryly. Just then Woodhall called all hands to bring in firewood. This was piled at a short distance in front of the tents, and when the last red flush of the setting sun had faded from the western sky, a match was touched to the pile, and the red flames were soon leaping up, throwing out a grateful heat, for the night was cold. And before it sprawled on their blankets, four happy boys lay and watched the weird shadows dance to the flicker of the flames and the little red sparks shoot up and die in the upper blackness, while they dreamed of the days to come and wondered if many of them would prove as exciting as had their first day on Swift River. End of chapter 7